So now before we, we read this passage here in Luke 7, I want to I want to talk a little bit about the idea that Christianity is not like any other worldview or philosophical system of thought on the planet Earth now or ever before. And why is that? Because Christianity rises and falls and is hinged completely on the idea of grace. Unlike any other philosophical system. All others have some sort of a balance beam of good deeds outweighing bad deeds and then maybe better things will happen to you. But in all of those, if your good deeds start to outweigh, then maybe some good things will happen to you. It's only in Christianity where Jesus shows us the great heart of God and shows us that God dares to be so generous as to give us the gift of of forgiveness and grace ahead of time and then trust that we'll get it. We'll get the depth of this gift and forever live with gratitude in our hearts and be guided with with a jump in our step to walk in alignment of He who changed our lives and to never allow that to dissipate into some sort of apathy But in order for that to be the case, we need to take a really good, hard look at grace and how we need it. And it was a little while ago that Deb and I were counseling a young lady that moved here from one of our sister churches. And when she arrived, at first we were excited, but then as we had some discussions with her, we realized that her apathy and worldliness was completely out of sync with the gospel message. And we tried to find out what, why is it that there is just no spark of Jesus that helps to enliven this young lady for the life that she's meant to live in Christ. And as, as Deb spoke with her some more, she began to realize that this young lady never recognized how deep her need for grace was. Yes, she went through some rituals of grace, where she came forward and she was you know, moved by a song and by her, her predicament in life and, and wanted to you know, be on a right track, but never took the time to really understand that the reason that there's grace is because we have sinned and sinned and sinned before a holy God. And to just shortchange that because it's unpleasant is a very dangerous thing. Because in doing so, you also shortchange the depth of appreciation of the gift of the removal of all of that stained defilement in our lives. And as a result, don't ever really get grace fully. And if, if, if you're here now and sit here saying, you know, I, I feel that way sometimes. I know I'm supposed to be moved by grace, amazed by grace. But sometimes I feel like I just don't get grace. Well, let me encourage you. Give your heart and your mind fully to this study of Luke 7, and you will be radically astounded by the message of grace that Jesus brings to us. Let's pray together, and we'll read this passage together. Father, as we're before you right now, we are here with celebration in our hearts 
knowing that we're together because of Jesus. We come here not because we pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but because we were compelled by your loving hand to come first to you and then to be able to be joined with one another, that we have this chance of a community of forgiven, justified, sanctified, washed saints. Who are we, God, that we would be bestowed with all of these descriptions by your word, and not just descriptions, but the actuality of that being our state here and now. I pray, God, that if any of us are right now seeking to try to figure this out, to figure out how it is that we can go from dead in sin to alive in Christ, how it is that the grace that enables all of this to happen is meant to be able to give us a motivation to completely change the trajectory of our lives, I pray, God, that your words now will do exactly that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Luke 7, verse 36 is where we left off last Sunday. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, denarii is a day's wage, and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house... You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, this is one of the most brilliant stories that we have in the New Testament. So astounding. And I want to make sure that we get it, even in the particulars, the depth of God's amazing grace as we see it through this passage. Now, first of all, I want you to understand the scene as it's laid out here. And as we do, it's important to note what a, what a dinner would look like in the first century. Because this woman is able to come and have access to Jesus' feet. Now, if we think about our own dinner parties, that would be 
the most awkward thing you could imagine. Is that right? What's that under the chair? What? What's, is that your dog? What's, what is that? But no one sat that way in the first century. Not, not often sat that way in the first century. Instead, they would recline on something called a, a, a triclinium, and it would allow you to kind of lay on your left side. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to demonstrate this for, for, for one moment here, all right? So, hang on. All right. So, you would lie on your left side like this, right? Your feet would be out. And then this would leave your right hand available. And there'd be cushions here. But then you would eat from the meal with your right hand and, and have discussions with those and so, to be said that you were at, for example, Luke 16, there's a passage saying that Lazarus, in the great banquet in heaven, was at, was at Abraham's bosom, or at his chest. It means that he would be sitting here, and, Lazarus, and uh, Abraham would be here, because that would uh, indicate his position. Why would they say it in that way? Well, because they're all kind of sideways here, as their feet are out. But, with your feet out like that, you are... You are able to, the woman is then able to have access to Jesus' feet. But, so, so she has access to Jesus' feet. What's the big deal about that? And why, why the emotion? Why this overwhelm? And m- many have wondered, is it because she came to that party trying to win forgiveness from Jesus? And that has been the, kind of the interpretation that many have had. But it is interesting to look back at, at, at some of the oldest interpreters of the Bible, including Origen and Ambrose, and uh, he writes, Only someone who had been forgiven much and therefore loved much could anoint Jesus' feet as the sinful woman had done. The idea here is that she's already been forgiven at some point. And now she has arrived at the dinner party. She doesn't arrive after Jesus because Jesus in the story says, from the moment I entered, she has not stopped kissing my feet. So she was already there. It's sometimes a bit confused by the first line where it says, a woman in that town, verse 37, who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. There's no verb was in the original language. She just hears Jesus at Pharisee's house. Maybe this is about to happen. Maybe it's you know happening concurrently. But it's not the idea that Jesus is already there. That is not indicated in the original language. In the original language, all that is indicated is that an event has been organized with Jesus at the Pharisee's house. The Pharisees would be the most religious folks of the town. And oftentimes in their righteousness... They unfortunately went over the edge to self-righteousness. And in in the midst of that, hypocrisy. And so there's positive things that we see about Pharisees in the New Testament. For example, in Luke 13, we'll see the Pharisees coming to Jesus and warning him that Herod is out to kill him. So that's that's a positive moment there for the Pharisees. But in most cases, we see the Pharisees in their pride of not really seeing their need for a radical connection to God because they feel like they've achieved it in and of their own efforts. So, let me move on here, though. This Pharisee has invited Jesus to his home. That's a big deal. And as a matter of fact, to invite a scholar into your home, an 11th century uh, rabbi wrote, if one partakes of a meal 
at which a scholar is present, it is as if he feasted on the brilliant ebullience of the divine presence. So if you have, for example, Travis over to your home, PhD scholar that he is, it's as if the brilliant ebullience of the divine presence itself is what you can feast on as you hang on every one of his words as, as it is there. But, but Jesus, being the scholar of great renown at this very point in time, is the one invited into Simon, the Pharisee's home. Rather than receive him with any due respect, something very odd goes on here. And Jesus details it at the end of the story about what Simon did not do. Now, whenever you walk into anyone's home, there are certain customs, rituals, that take place of hospitality of which you are often unconscious. But they happen as a matter of course because of the familiarity of that. So if you, if you come to someone's house, normally they would see you at the door, greet you with, Hey, Bruce, how are you? Would you like to come in? And then some of you may just take his shoes off, poor Bruce, but I don't. Anyway, but come on in. The next thing we would ask, would you, would you like to have a seat? Right? And then what would be the next thing that we ask? Right. So we have these things that you just know are ingrained in us as a matter of course. And for any of those not to happen, for me to leave Bruce awkwardly at the front door, as I say, you know what? I'll be back in a moment. And then he's just stuck there without any of the formalities of protocol of hospitality would be a huge slight to Bruce. We say, what? what? I mean, I come over here. We had a point. What? what is this? Right. But Bruce is too kind to like verbalize that. He's thinking the best. But but the way that Jesus was treated was a snub after a slight after a snub. And he was in a sense because hospitality in the Middle East is over-the-top important. He was not just snubbed, but Jesus was humiliated before all of these Pharisees. And the sinful woman, the way that's spoken of, it probably indicates that she's somewhat of a, maybe a, a harlot, a town prostitute perhaps. The sinful woman is able to come to this, this party. It was likely held w- with any size in a courtyard And again, all the homes would have been connected almost, if it was Capernaum in in particular. We don't know if it's Capernaum, but it likely could have been. And there was no, like, private life like we enjoy in the West. I don't know if we enjoy private life, or maybe if we've been, in a sense, contaminated by a concept of private life. But it was all community in the first century. And to be able to see a dinner party and for her to happen upon it was quite easy. There were no huge, you know, gatekeepers or bouncers keeping her from this. It would have all been right there. And so there she is. And as she is there in anticipation of Jesus' arrival, in he comes. And then she has to witness. And again, it is likely the case that Jesus has already had an encounter with this woman. That is what has brought her there. And that encounter with her was one in which she was redeemed. She and all of her stigma, filth of sin and ill repute has been made whole by the loving intervention of Jesus. And so of course she wants to be where Jesus is going to be. And as she arrives, she says, yes, Jesus is here. Maybe he'll have an effect on all these guys who are you know, so judgmental. And, and as she anticipates Jesus' arrival... What does she see instead? Snub of all snubs. And her Jesus being humiliated 
in front of all these men of supposed great reputation. And as soon as he settles in to the dinner and reclines at the table as all would as they get ready for the dinner, she's overcome by the humiliation, by the fact that no one has given him water for his feet. No one has given him a kiss of greeting. No one has given him any sign of respect with oil for the head. And in viewing this, she begins to weep, falls at his feet, looks to see, is there a way that perhaps, you know, there's water and she realizes her tears can be that very water. And with her tears streaming, out of her love for Jesus, out of a gratitude for him, and out of indignation that he would be treated so horribly, she grieves and cries and uses those very tears to wash the feet of Jesus. But doesn't stop there. And then decides at that point to unfurl her hair. No small thing. This is an act of huge proportions. As a, as a matter of fact, both the Mishnah and the Talmud, these would be ancient uh, Jewish teachings. The Babylonian Talmud, as a matter of fact, is from the 2nd century, about 150 AD. And there it says, in there is a list of offenses that, that speaks of whether a man can divorce his wife and what are grounds for a divorce in which you do not have to pay ketubah which is a financial arrangement for the divorce. And in certain cases, because the activity of the wife is so heinous, the husband in, in, in Jewish society, under the tradition of the Mishnah and the, and the uh, Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, is able to not only put her away, divorce her, but not have to give her any financial support and leave her out there in a horribly compromised, vulnerable position. What is one of those offenses? To go out in public with her hair unfurled. To unfurl your hair in public was regarded as that huge of an offense. It's, it's in a list with other things like bathing with men. That's how grave this violation would have been in her society. And as she's there and she's at Jesus' feet, weeping, wiping, uh, realizing that, that she's been able to, to wet his feet, and now how is it that she'll be able to cleanse them and wipe them off? Her, her clothing would have been quite plentiful. She could have used one of the many folds of her garment to do it. But I think this was an intentional act on her part. The greatest act of love that she could have had. It was, in a sense, the ultimate pledge of all in unity and intimacy with Jesus as she decides to unfurl her hair. Demonstrate that for you. And use her hair itself to wipe the feet of Jesus. Thereby setting herself up to perhaps never be marriage material by anyone in that society. Because of that scandalous unfurling of her hair that would have occurred then and there. And Jesus was worth it. To somehow bolster his honor in the midst of that humiliation was worth it for her. She kissed his feet and then took the perfume, the, the alabaster jar that she had, worth almost, by the way, 500 denarii. Most estimates put it in that range. 
which is interesting as you, you hear the, the parable in the middle of the story. But this 500 denarii, 500 days wages, two years of wage, and she pours it on Jesus' feet to anoint him. And in the midst of this, Simon, arms folded, says to himself, you know, I came, I had this guy brought over here to check him out. I wanted to see whether this rabbi, who is all the rage, really was in alignment with the will of God. And he begins to grumble, thinking, I found him out. If he were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman she is. That she is a sinner. You know what's interesting? Is Jesus allows the tension to build. Because he says not a word. As she shows his love to him. Throughout the whole beginning of this story. And by not saying a word. He allows Simon in sense to trap himself. With his own assumptions that he makes. And then rather than just shoot Simon down. To let him know, by the way, you're wrong, wrong, wrong. I am a prophet. I do know who this woman is. And by the way, she's forgiven. She's no longer a sinner. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Strike one, two, three, Simon. But on top of all of that, just to show you a little something, something about who I am, I'm not going to just come at you right away. I'm going to answer your thoughts. And I do it in a parable. Simon, let me tell you a little story. Tell me, teacher. Two men owed money. One owed two years of wage. The other owed two months of wage. They both had their debts forgiven by the same man. Which of them will love more? Now Simon's engaged. And he said, I suppose the one who had the greater debt canceled. You've judged right, Simon. But now let me tell you why I shared this with you. When I came in here, you invited me into your home gave me no water for my feet. I just stood there. You gave me no kiss of greeting. Left me awkward at that moment. There was no honor of, of oil for my head. And all I could do is then just settle in to the dinner. But this woman, from the time that I arrived, she wet my feet with her tears. She's never stopped kissing my feet. She dried them with her hair and she took her alabaster jar and she anointed my feet with that jar. He who has been forgiven little loves little, but he who has been forgiven much loves much. And in that story, Jesus helps us to see that if we're going to get grace, We've got to recognize how great our need for grace is. Now, before I move on, and for those of you who want to take a three-minute intellectual break right now, have at it, because I'm going to go nerdy right now. Now, one of the things that is brilliant, brilliant about this story is that in addition to being such a tightly communicated, impactful story... It is also done in the most classic style of rabbinic teaching. And Luke lays it out in what is called inclusio uh, style, where the first thing is reiterated as the last thing. So think of like the great lampstand of the menorah of Jewish culture. The first thing is connected to the last. 
The second thing is connected to the penultimate, third to the, the second from last, and then finally the centerpiece of it. Now, you say, well, why are you going through all of this? Look at the way that this story is laid out. The, the beginning. Let me keep this mic near me since it's hard to hear. Look at the beginning here. The first thing that we encounter, the tension as Jesus, the woman, and Simon set the scene. The last thing, the resolution of Jesus and the woman and Simon. The second thing, the outpouring of the woman's love in action. The connected second to last thing, the outpouring of the woman's love as described by Jesus. The third, Jesus' dialogue with Simon, where he judges wrong about the woman and Jesus. The, the, the connected third, third thing, uh, second thing from last, Jesus' dialogue again with Simon. This time where he judges right about who will love more in the parable. And then at the center of it, often the centerpiece of the story, is the parable itself. So you can see, first and last, second and second to last, third and third to last, and then the centerpiece of it all. Little side note there, Jesus has got it going on, the Holy Spirit has got it going on, and how all of this is arranged. There is brilliance at every turn. All we can do is just jump up and down, slap me in my face, and just say, Jesus is awesome. Now, but let's, let's move on here, because if we're going to really understand this story, we've got to look at, this is a story setting in contrast to characters. And these two characters are the sinful woman and Simon. And now we always call her the sinful woman. Maybe we should call her like the forgiven woman or the love much woman. But nonetheless, I'll go with the, the standard fare, the, the sinful woman. So this sinful woman, she realized how deep her debt was. Simon did not. Now, this is an important note. Because here has how Christianity is becoming anemic in our society. Is that churches and preachers wanting to take a shortcut, being so cowardly without any steel in their spine, are afraid to talk about sin. But when you're afraid to talk about sin, what you are doing, either wittingly or unwittingly, is that you are ripping the power of grace away from everyone who would have it applied to their hearts. And if all we're going to do is just act like, well, isn't it nice to have grace, without first appreciating how deep our need for grace is, then we rip the whole power of grace away. Now, this woman, it's interesting, recognizes the depth of her debt. Simon the Pharisee, he's religious. Hey, I'm into maybe getting a little bit better in my walk with God here. Maybe I'll have this Jesus guy over. Maybe I'll sprinkle a little bit more perspectives on the Bible into my life. We'll see if that does anything. Maybe it'll be helpful along the way. That's his attitude. And with his perhaps 50 denarii debt, his two months of debt versus her two years of debt, he probably even thinks, you know what? But I could probably cover that by just kind of applying greater discipline, slam a little more spiritual discipline up against my life and get myself back on track in an even cooler place with God. Whereas the woman despairs of any self-effort, 
recognize my only hope at all from damnation itself and eternal condemnation as well as shame in this life and the life to come, my only chance is if somehow God himself can intervene and make me whole and make me right. It's the same thing for every one of you as you sit here. For me as well. I think that the greatest gift that I was ever given as I started to seek God, and I, I tried to seek God over and over again. Let me, let me tell you. I mean, as a kid, you know, I did all the catechism stuff. Later in life, even after I sinned it up and sinned it up as a ridiculous frat boy that was a poster child for drunk and disorderly conduct, and I was literally a poster child on at least three uh, posters as they took my pictures for drunk and disorderly conduct during arrests, that, that the great thing about coming to Jesus, ultimately, even though at the age of 22... I studied the Bible every Friday morning, which is a difficult thing for somebody who goes out every Thursday night. Every Friday morning with the campus priest. And yet, you know what? He never really insisted of me aligning myself and repenting and aligning myself with the will of God. I went through the ceremonies. I made my holy confirmation. I, I did all of those things. And you know what? I walked away unchanged. There was no fire inside of me that launched me on a trajectory of living a radically different life. All it was is maybe it took away a little bit of guilt thinking, well, I think I'm maybe kind of more part of the church family now. That's all that it could do. Because that's all that it was trying to do. But at 29, when I had a neighbor who was living righteously, convicted to the core by his life, and then he sat down, he sat down and showed me the Bible, and I realized where I was, and what it was that Jesus wanted me to be, and, and how big my debt was, and how overwhelming it was, and, and despairing of ever realizing how this could be made right, and then having forgiveness laid out biblically, not traditionally, biblically by the Bible. Whoa. I went to my baptism at that point with a deep conviction. I think I am the filthiest man who is ever going to be washed by the blood of Jesus. I praise God that that was my conviction. I pray that, that, that every one of you, whether it was then or not, that it would be your conviction. My goodness, who am I that Jesus would intervene in my life? Well, let's, let's take a look at these two. Say hello to my little friend. Now, this sinful woman, all she wanted, all she wanted was to do whatever it took to be before Christ and to be reconciled. And as a result of realizing how deep her need was, she loved much. And then... There's Simon the Pharisee. Knows his Bible. Done a lot of good things. Member in good standing at the synagogue. Leads a Sunday school class. On Saturdays, of course. And, and thinks maybe, maybe a little extra might not, have, not be so bad. If I could ask maybe Jeff and Dave to come up here. I want to kind of illustrate this to you a little bit. 
Okay, so the purposes of this illustration here. Here's a simple woman, and she realizes how deep her debt is, right? And, and as she does, she gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Bishop, a little help? So deep, she was changing the entire landscape of her life. But as she got deeper, here's something remarkable. Is that as she got deeper, it wasn't just to rub her nose in the filth of her life. But as she got deeper, there was tension waiting to be applied. What was that tension? The grace of God. The forgiveness that awaited her. And we're good. And as she got deeper and deeper and waited for that tension to be applied, she had it applied to the depth of her true sinfulness. She was not afraid to take a ruthless, honest inventory of her life before God and to recognize just how sinful it was. And so, as she got deeper and deeper and had grace to be applied, she loved much. She soared. The trajectory of her life was radically changed. But now, Simon has the same deal waiting for him, has the same forgiveness waiting to be applied, has the same tension, divine, beautiful tension, waiting only to lift him to a new life. And, again, you can lift up again. And Simon, rather than deciding to really look deep at his debt of sin, to really look deep at the filth of his pride, to look deep at his hypocrisy, to look deep at his apathy, instead thought, ah, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit of Jesus wouldn't hurt. Maybe a little bit more church wouldn't be so bad. And so with all the divine tension of grace waiting to be applied to his life, this is all he did. God forbid this is all that we ever do. God forbid that we, in self-protection, caring how we look before others, only take it this deep. When all that is waiting for us in grace, and he takes it this deep. And as a result, <laughs> is, is all that he realized. All that he realized. If you, if you guys can um, be, be ready at the second. Now, I'm going to need Jeff to stand there and, and you to stand over here for a second. So, but in order, in order for this, in order for this... Uh, right, right, right there would be great. Thank you. Now, in order for us to understand this, one of the things that we have to understand is that we sin much. Yeah. Right? I mean, man, it's a funny phrase, right? Sin much? My daughter says that to me every time like I, I drink and spill. Drink much? Right? But sin much? Yes, you do. Oh, no, 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 not me. Yes, you too. Oh, but I'm only a teen. I wish I sinned like my dad. So grace would have a bank. Yes, you too. Yeah. You've had every advantage. And yet, with every advantage, you decide to half-step it. 
and engage with apathy. God arranging time and space for you. Yeah, yeah but, no, 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 you sin much, as a matter of fact. But let me just, to illustrate this a bit, let's say in, in, in this illustration that Jeff represents Jesus, as he often does, right? And you, can, you can move a little further over, right? And just to get a perspective of relative sin here. And David represents Hitler. All right? Why don't you move over just a little bit more, Hitler? I, I had a, a, a black pen. Does anybody have a black pen? No, it was a Sharpie. Ah, all right, never mind. I won't, I won't do it. I won't do it. But okay. And so, and so joking about that. All right. So, let's have Bill come on up. Bill, if you could stand right here. All right. If that's Jesus and that's it, come on, Bill, right up here. You face your accusers uh, or your encouragers. All right. So, where is Bill on this continuum between Hitler and Jesus before he's saved? Where, how about you? It, tell me, how much further up? I'm, I'm going to let Malcolm help me here. What's that? Yeah. How much further? More? More? You know, a lot, a lot of people, a lot of people say, oh, Bill's probably, like, maybe somewhere over, a little bit closer to Hitler. You know what? You know what Bill is, where, where Bill is? Bill is side-hugging Hitler. That's, that's the real... Hey, get over there. Get over there, Bill. Where you belong. We're not over here. Not the, the biggest thing that messes up our appreciation of grace is that we overestimate our before picture. Well, it's a great guy. He's singing the Bible. He's doing so great. We say this with our teens all the time. Oh, they're really great. And now they're making their bed. So they're really doing well. No, I don't care how much they make their bed. I don't care how much they're taking notes. I don't care if they start to sing. I don't care if they actually say hello to you in church. They are still side-hugging Hitler until they've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And, And that is exactly where we all are. Who are we to ever be able to engage in the redemptive work, to have that tension resolved? By the grace of God, you guys can sit down now. Thanks. But that's not the only issue. Yes, so you come to this great place where you realize, Oh, I'm such a sinner, I'm such a sinner. That's not enough. Because all that does is make you weird. And make you self-conscious. And make you full of shame. But, ah, yeah, I'm filthy, I'm dirty, I'm defiled, I'm all... Yes, you are. But that's not the end of the story. Come on. Come on. This story ends with Jesus assuring her that she has been forgiven. Amen. It's not just enough to realize that. And now, that assurance of forgiveness needs to be biblical. Or else, you're going to get weird down the road. So many churches have these novel conventions, by convention I mean a a traditional convention uh, or or, or ritual that they have put into place, and it's often associated with the idea of an altar call. 
where the preacher comes up and he, and he wants you know everybody to have a sense of forgiveness, and it's a made-up, unbiblical tradition. And it normally goes something like this. Tell me if you've ever heard this before. Or how hard this would even be. Oh, you know what? I feel like some of you out there today are going through some hard times. And you, you probably need to be redeemed by Jesus. Some of you out there may... Oh, wait! There's one of you out there that you're having... Wait a minute. Deep conflict in your marriage. Imagine that. Others of you... You're having financial difficulties. You don't even know how you're going to find your way out of it. Others of you have sinned and it's a stain on your heart and you don't know how it's going to be resolved. Some of you brothers out there have engaged in pornographic, internet, lustful activity and know that you need to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Some of you sisters out there are so bitter against your moms that you can't forgive that. That you need to be redeemed. If there's any hope for you, I could go through like three more things. And by the way, all of you would be covered three or four times over by that list. Right? Who wouldn't? And and if you want to be redeemed, come on forward. Come on forward and pray this prayer with me. Oh, Lord Jesus, uh, please come into my heart and be with me and I with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for redeeming me and making me whole in you. Show me one person in a book of Acts. That comes to have the, the certainty of forgiveness through that really made up tradition of men. Completely made up. If we don't go about it biblically, we'll take this huge ball of sin of which we've been convicted. This ruthless inventory of stank, of sin that we've begun to appreciate. And if we don't have it resolved biblically, well then, oh my goodness. We're never going to know what it is to spring to new life and live our lives for Jesus. Colossians 2 makes it rather clear that that how do we go from dead in sin? Colossians 2.13 says that once you were dead in your sin and the uncircumcision of your flesh, Christ made you alive with him and forgave you all your sins. When did that happen? The previous verse says, having been buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him, Through your faith. Just as Jesus says to this woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. To to be able to come to a place of real faith. Real faith. When when I was baptized as an infant, really, how much faith did I have to be raised to new life? Right? But if we really do come to a place of conviction and repentance and faith, and then really submit biblically to the new life, been buried with Christ and risen with Him to new life, we can have a certainty. Why? And so, well, that sounds like a work. The Bible never describes it as a work. It is part of the gift of God. And the fact that it is experiential, and the fact that it is definite, and the fact that it is clear, only adds to the gift of grace. The fact that I have clarity that on March 17th of 1993, I was born again of water and spirit, only enhances the depth of the gift. Only makes me more amazed that someone like me could have gone from dead in sin to alive in Christ, and there's no doubt that it happened. Amen. It's part of the gift. But to make it anything other is a, is a horrible shame. But when you come to that place, study the Bible, look deeply, take the step back. Every step back that you do in taking a deep inventory of your sin is accompanied by attention, waiting to flip you forward. With every step back that you take of realizing that you've sinned much, you have waiting for you the fact that you will be forgiven much. And when that happens, 
What's the result? You love much. The great result. It's why Jesus trusts that grace will have its effect on you. Not some anemic, compromised, contaminated version of grace, but biblical grace. We realize the depth of our need. We have applied in great certainty. And when that happens, we love much. If we're to make this parable a modern day parable, and I often share this even in Bible studies with people. Let's say Marshall and I um, are, or let's say Bruce and I are hanging out with Marshall this week, all right? And, and during this week, Marshall and I go, go for uh, lunch and he likes sushi, so I'm fired up. I'll go get sushi, but a little bit expensive because I, I, I didn't watch the menu. And, and I order it on up and the bill cut 20 bucks. Shouldn't have the diet coke, but nonetheless, 20 bucks, but I forget my wallet. And I'm like, Marshall, I forgot my wallet. I'm so sorry. And he's like, you know what? I got you. Oh, really? He's, yeah, I got you. I'll pay you. No, I got you. Pay us 20 bucks. I got you. Well, amen. And I'm fired up. I had a little bit of debt for sure. And it was forgiven by this wonderful man. Amen. Hopefully that happens one day. <laughs> but then later that week, Marshall's talking to Bruce. And he hears from Bruce. That his car, which he's been paying on for like two and a half years, is almost done enough. But he's fallen on some hard times. And he's like 2,000 in arrears on his car payments. And he hears about it and he says, Bruce, you know what? I heard about your predicament. And here I, I wrote you a check. Here, $2,000 GMAC financing. I, I hate the fact that you'd have to lose that. I went, and Bruce's like, oh, brother, that's so kind of you. But, ah, uh, but. <laughs> pay you back. I'm going to pay you back. And, and Marshall's like, no, you know what? I have it. And I don't often have it, but I have it now. I want you to be set free from all of this debt. Wow. And Bruce is like, boy! <laughs> but, six months go by. Marshall is traveling. He gets stuck on his travels home by the, by the flight at Dulles Airport. It's late, it's 11 o'clock, no more flights are flying into Norfolk or to Newport News. Can't find a way down, no trains, no planes, no automobiles, no car, nothing. And so he texts the two people that are his great friends in life, Bruce and me. Same text, I'm stuck, I'm not Dallas, I know it's far away, it's like three and a half hours up and back, but is there any chance, because I gotta get back for an appointment in the morning, that you could drive up, get me and bring me back? So we're both asleep, it's, you know, it's 11 o'clock at night. He's got a 5 a.m. you know aerobics class, whatever he does, Pilates or something. Pilates. It's like a stretching class. We're both asleep, right? And but we both hear the little and we go and we both check our text messages, and it says the same thing. You know, he's stuck. What can we do? And I see it, and I'm like, oh no! Debbie wakes up. And says, what's the matter? I was like, ah, oh, Marshall's stuck at Dulles. Oh, he said, oh, let me see if he sent this to more than one person. Oh, please, let there be multiple people. <laughs> he did, he did. So I called, Marshall, anybody else answer? No, all right, all right. So, you know, I kind of get in the car, schlep on up to Dulles Airport, you know, pick him up, and, you know, kind of act like, oh, this is like the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And bring him back, make him feel a little bit guilty, but not too much. And, you know, the next day, 
talk about how I did it to everybody with complaints in my voice the whole way. But I do it. I do the right thing. And I bring him back. Bruce, in the parallel universe of this story, looks at his text and he's like, Whoa! Whoa! And Joanne's like, what is it now? He's like, Marshall! Marshall's in trouble! Marshall's in trouble and he needs me! It's like, uh, okay, so what? And he quickly called, Marshall, Marshall, hey, did you call anybody else? You tell them no. I got this. I got you, brother. I got you. I got you. No, but I, I got you. And he, he quickly starts to make arrangements. Quickly, you know, he, he goes, he, he puts together a little mixtape of soul classics for the road trip with two of them. Buys some beef jerky at the Wawa on the way up. You know, he gets a favorite little, you know, Coke Zero for, for Marshall on the way home. You know, and, and he gets there, he sees him, he picks up Marshall. Oh, brother, this is going to be so great. We're going to bond, we're going to have a road, road trip, road trip. Here, let me put you in the seat. Put your luggage, put that in. And the whole way down, he's happy as a lark. Talking, I can't believe how great is our God to work this out. We can spend this time together. I was just telling Joanne how much I'm just so grateful for you. What you've done for me and for my family. And if there's any way that I can repay you, man, I'd be so fired up to be able to do exactly that. And so he does. So let me tell you now, why is grace so important? Simply this. What type of Christianity do you want to live out? Me driving to Dulles Airport? Or Bruce driving to Dulles Airport? Which of those two Christianities better looks like your Christianity right now? It ought to be love. What else could I do for Jesus? What else can I do for Jesus? Anything else that I can do for Jesus? I was a mess. I was hopeless. I was damned. And now I've been redeemed. I've been washed. I've been justified. I've been sanctified by the blood of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. My goodness, what would I not do? Brothers and sisters, if you've been redeemed, love much. Love much at every step. And if you're here trying to, figure, trying to figure this thing out, let me encourage you. Don't in any way short change the depth of a ruthless inventory of sin. And don't compromise on the clarity and, and insist on learning it biblically of what it is to really be forgiven and to be redeemed by your faith. Yeah. Do not allow any sleep to come to your eyes until you see that with great clarity. Because what awaits you just around the corner is not some wobbly falling off and that's it, but to be able to soar and live for Jesus and to love much. Amen. Amen.